0: There we go. Uh, you would be surprised how hard it is to do anything when you're all facing, and I'm that way. It's very, very uncomfortable, but that's okay. Um, welcome here. We are back in 1 Corinthians for the first time since somewhere in the end of June, and uh, I'm excited for it. We only have a, a few chapters left, but this will probably take us pretty close to Advent. Uh, if you're visiting, yes, we go that slow, and I... Uh, that's just, that's just the way it is, I guess. What we typically do in, in this church throughout the year is, is we pick a book and we study through it and we figure out what is God trying to teach us? What is God trying to show us? What is relevant for us in these, uh, these passages that we would be able to learn uh, and know what he, who God is and, and what his purposes are for our life? And 1 Corinthians uh, is this very interesting book uh, because there's a, there's a lot of unique things in it. And, and we started this the last Sunday of December in 2020, and I showed a video at that point, kind of an over theme video from the Bible Project, um, just giving us some context, giving us some idea of what to be prepared for. And I had a few different people this week ask, can we, can we watch that video again Sunday morning just to refresh our minds? Because I'm under no illusion that you remember where we were at all. Uh summer was a long break away, and so I think it's good for us to refresh our minds what's been happening in First Corinthians up to this point. So you can open all the way to chapter 14 is where we're going to start, but I'm going to just get Josh and, and Jordan to show us the video, uh, and it's about eight minutes long, and then we'll come up and, and we'll, we'll dive into chapter 14.
1: Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Written to a church community that Paul knew really well. Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world and had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. And so Paul strategically came here as a missionary. He spent a year and a half there getting to know people, talking to them about Jesus. And a whole bunch of people became followers of Jesus and formed a church community. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 18. So after a while Paul moved on to start churches in other cities and he started getting reports that things were not going well at all back at the church in Corinth. It was plagued by all kinds of problems and that is why he wrote this letter. It is broken up into five main parts along with a final greeting. And these five sections correspond to five main problems that Paul is addressing. And so the letter reads like a collection of short essays on different topics but there are these core ideas that unite all of the pieces together. So here is what he does in each section. He describes the problem but then he always responds to that problem with some part of the story of the gospel which is the good news about Jesus. And he shows how they are actually not living out what they say they believe. And so this letter is all about learning to think about every area of life through the lens of the gospel. So let us dive in and see how he does it. In chapters 1-4 through the problem is that there are these divisions in the church. There are some other teachers who had come through town since Paul left. A guy named Apollos and then Peter. And people had picked their favorite teacher and then became groupies around that leader and then started to talk bad and disrespect people who favored another leader or teacher. And so Paul, his response to this is kind of sarcastic and sharp. He says, you have to be kidding me, right? The church is not a popularity contest. The church is a community of people who are centered around Jesus. Its leaders and its teachers are simply servants of Jesus. So while you might prefer one leader more than another, it's not worth dividing over and certainly not speaking poorly about each other. The center of the church is Jesus and the good news about who he is and what he's done. In chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sex. There were a number of people sleeping around in the church, one guy with his stepmother. A number of other people still worshiping at the local temples to greet gods and sleeping with the prostitutes who worked there. Not only that, but there were people in the church who were saying that this was all just fine. They said, hey, we're free in Christ. God's grace is bottomless, right? It's fine. Paul says, it's not fine. And with the Gospel in hand, he shows just how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. He says, remember first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so, if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus' love and grace. Paul also reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, So our bodies will be raised from the dead, which means this. If your body is being redeemed by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And it's not yours to do whatever you want with. Paul's being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity. In chapters 8 through 10, the issue is about food, but not just food preferences like do you like or dislike a certain food. The issue the Corinthians were divided over is meat that came from animals sacrificed in the local temples to Greek and Roman gods. And there was a split between the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians about how to respond to this issue. And once again, Paul appeals to some core ideas from the Gospel. He says, our allegiance first and foremost is to Jesus as Lord, not to any other gods. And so if you are in a situation where there is meat that has been dedicated to another god, And there are people around who might watch you and conclude, oh look, hey, Christians worship Jesus and they can worship other gods too. Paul says if that's the scenario, don't eat the meat. Your loyalty is to Jesus and you should love those people more than yourself and not mislead them. But Paul quickly qualifies this and says, Listen, as Christians we believe God is the creator of all things including that animal. And the temple idols, we believe, are just pieces of wood and stone. So if there is no one around who is going to misunderstand your actions and you are hungry, eat up. You are free as a new human in Christ to follow your conscience in these kind of debatable matters. So what makes it okay in one situation to eat but not in the other? The core principle is love. Love will deny itself and look out for the well-being of other people. And love, God's love, is at the core of the gospel. It's what Jesus did when he died for us and so Paul says it's what Christians should do for other people. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul moves on and addresses problems in their weekly worship gathering. There were some people who were having really powerful spiritual experiences in the gathering and so they would start praying out loud in unknown languages there were other people who might start sharing a teaching or a word from God and then someone would get up and interrupt them because they wanted to share. And it all was really chaotic and it was distracting people, especially visitors, from hearing the gospel. So in these chapters Paul helps them think first of all about the purpose of this gathering to help them see what kind of behaviors are appropriate. He says, the gathering is a place where God's Spirit should be working through everybody and it should happen in a unified way. So he develops this cool metaphor about the church as a human body. It is one but it has all these different parts and each part serves a unique and important role. So he goes on to name a whole bunch of things that the Spirit does through all these different people all for the building up of the church. That is a key phrase in these chapters. And Paul concludes that the highest value in the gathering should be a concept central to the gospel god's love and love is a key word in these chapters too love will compel each person in the gathering to use their role to serve and seek the well-being of others so paul applies all this to the corinthians problems Some people think the purpose of the gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. And Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful experiences of prayer, but if it distracts other people or freaks them out, I should stop it because I'm loving myself more than I'm loving those people. The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everybody can learn and sing and worship and hear God speaking to them. The last problem Paul addresses is the issue of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of Jesus' followers. There were some people in the church who were saying that the idea of resurrection is ridiculous and doesn't really matter to being a Christian. And Paul reacts to this big time. He begins by saying that the resurrection is an indispensable part of the gospel. We believe in it because of the hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive in a physical body after being publicly executed by the Romans. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then his death was meaningless. We are all still lost in our sin and selfishness. We should just stop being Christians. Paul then shows in detail how the resurrection was Jesus' victory over death and evil, how it's a source of life and power for us now in the present, and how it's a promise of future hope for the whole world. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason to be unified around Jesus. It's the reason we have motivation for sexual integrity. It's the source of power for loving other people more than ourselves. And ultimately, it's our hope for victory over death. And so, Paul concludes, we do believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Which means this, the gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. It is an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality. And that is what 1 Corinthians is all about, seeing every part of life through the lens of that gospel.
0: Oh. Are we good? Check. There we go. So that's what, uh, that's what we're looking at when we read 1 Corinthians, when we see what's happening. And, and when you look at the church as a whole in, in Corinth, uh, we're not all that much different in a lot of different ways, um, or in a lot of similar ways, I should say, is division has crept into churches all over the place, and, and we see those divisions, and we respond to those divisions, and sometimes those divisions are ridiculous is the best word that we can use. And and, and so we've been focusing on how do we love one another the way that Christ has loved us so that we can participate together and so that we can be the church, so we can reach out to the community. Oh, we're just having okay. Uh, Okay. Yeah, we're good. We're training some people at the back and uh, that's exciting times. We're very thankful for them, with their willingness to learn. So as we get into 14 here, let's just do a real quick little bit of context. So chapter 12, if you just want to flip back for a second, you can see this. is There's this beginning start of, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts, Paul says. The various ways in which God has gifted you to serve one another. And so you saw in the video, the point of your spiritual gift is the building up of the church. That you would serve other people with it. That's the whole point of the gifts that you have. And, and we looked at some of these gifts briefly, and then I did the chicken out thing. No, I didn't. I said in chapter 14, that's going to come. We'll talk about that more. And, and that's where we are today. But then between 12 and 14 is this little chapter that we, many of us know very well from from weddings and things like that, is this idea of love. And and while certainly you can feel free to use chapter 13 in the context of marriage that, that works great, is how it's actually written is to correct people's assumption of how to relate with other people. People were using the gifts that God had given them, but they were using them improperly, they were misusing them, and they were elevating themselves instead of others. And so Paul says some of these familiar things like, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, he's saying this, is it doesn't matter how talented you are, how gifted you are, how much God has given you these crazy, wonderful things, is if you don't love God, the people that you are ministering to, then you might as well have nothing. And that's a real shock to us. Because sometimes, I would say often in our culture, we start to create an identity based on the things that we're good at and the skills that we have. I'm this person. This is where my skills are and that begins to be where I find my identity. And, and as Tim Mackey pointed out in the video, is, is, no, our identity is found in the love of Jesus and the fact that he died on the cross for us. And so now when we think about every aspect of our life, our work, our home, and, and how we relate to one another this morning in this way of spiritual gifts, all of it's meant to be filtered through the lens of the gospel. What is the gospel? The truth that Jesus died on the cross for you, that he loves you and that he wants to be in relationship with you and that together as we bind ourselves in unity and we seek the same ultimate goal, which is the exaltation of Jesus to the communities that we live in, As we do that, Christ will be honored and glorified. And throughout the book, Paul simply says this, is not about you. It's about the whole. Not just about individuals, but about the community. And that's where we end up here in chapter 14. As I just mentioned, there are times that we can get really divided over things as churches. And I was just looking, I googled a few, I shouldn't have, but I googled a few examples of things that have divided churches. And, uh, and there's the obvious ones, right? Like some philosophical differences about how they're going to approach worship. Um, there's theological problems, of course. Uh, and then there's really, really silly issues like the color of the carpet or what color the walls are. Or perhaps more hitting closer to home in our day is how the church should or shouldn't have responded to the pandemic or even more current, which something this is ripping churches apart like crazy in our current culture, is to be vaccinated or not. And we start to have all these fights and these arguments, and, and all of this book is meant to show us, no, we got to stop that. We have to love one another. And yes, we can still have our opinions, we can still hold things high, we can still think that things are important, but not at the expense of expelling or getting so angry that, that we cannot even be in the same room with someone who disagrees with us. In fact, the beautiful part of the church, I think, as we go through the New Testament, is that Jesus invites all nations, all ethnicities, all cultures into it. And then, of course, we're going to have some differences. But those differences actually bring beauty. Because we get to say, look how creative and look how amazing God is. Look how different we are. And I think it should speak to the world in this way. Even despite all the differences that we have in any particular local body, is we can exalt Christ together. We can put our differences aside and we can say to the community, Jesus is what's most important. And so I will lay aside some of my thoughts or, or my uh, assumptions, my theological convictions, if they're, if they're not important enough to cause division and, and then worship together and show our community that. And and this is where we find ourselves. We're going to deal with with two spiritual gifts this morning, prophecy and tongues. That is a tall order. We're going to look at these two gifts that have divided probably more churches than any of the other spiritual gifts based on misunderstandings, misuse, based on all kinds of problems. And so I, I don't want you to think here that somehow I'm going to give you some kind of last word that you will now understand when you walk out the door what tongues and what prophecies and how they should work exactly right, some of this is difficult to interpret and understand. And there's room to agree to disagree on a few of these small points. And so while some of this is going to be very important, it's not to the place where we then expel others from our gathering and go, no, you can't worship with me because you think this and I think this. That's what we're going to try and sort out here. So let's read these first 12 verses together. It says this. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So these two gifts Paul wants to address. And scholars uh, kind of view it from this context is, as Paul's been teaching in Corinthians, it becomes very clear that in Corinth, people think that, that speaking in tongues is this mark of spiritual maturity. That that's for the kind of the elite in the church. And, and those people, those are the ones gifted by God and, and are more important. And, and, and Paul's trying to say, no, that's not the case. In fact, at the end of 13, um, Sorry, at the end of twelve, he says, "Do all speak in tongues, do all do this, do all do this? No." He says, "God has created you and has given you gifts for you in the purpose and the context from which he found or he, he has placed you because he wanted to. so not everyone has the same gift, and so't don't, don't eagerly desire this one gift and then and then Paul makes the argument why would you argue or why would you want to have tongues over prophecy when tongues is only about you but prophecy is about building up one another he's saying that's where your focus should be on the health and the edification of the church not solely on you and so that's why i say my goal is not to try and just exhaustively explain to you exactly what tongues is but to show us why paul addresses tongues in the way that he does in this passage But just before we get there, notice this. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. He starts there even though he's been writing for the last couple of chapters here about the misuse and the misunderstanding and the commotion that spiritual gifts are causing within the church. He doesn't say abandon them because you're just misusing them. He says, no, they're important and they have value, but learn what they are. Learn how to use them. Not for yourself, but for the edification of one another. So even when there's confusion and maybe some chaos at some times in here, Paul doesn't just say, just abandon it and walk away. He says, let's relearn and understand it correctly. He says, especially desire that you would prophesy. Now, he explains, and so we're not really going to get into this too much, he explains why he desires people to prophesy over tongues, because prophecy builds up the whole church. And tongues builds up the individual, unless it's interpreted. And we'll talk about all of this as we go here. Let's start with tongues because I want to deal with this from two viewpoints. When I started reading through this text and studying it this week again, and I, you know, in Bible college it was like your class was over if someone asked, hey, what about tongues? So I could just turn into this massive conversation where we didn't really get anywhere and decide anything. And it was really people's way to like, between that and Calvinism, it was like, let's ask those two questions we don't have to learn today. Uh, And so I've looked at this passage lots, I've studied it lots, I have my assumptions of where where I've kind of ended up and what I think. And so what I tried to do this week is I tried to read this text, take myself out of my own assumptions and interpret it from... This perspective and then from this perspective. And that's very hard. I, I acknowledge that. Like we come to things with our own biases, and that's reality. But I tried as hard as I could to step back from here and look at this because there's two predominant thoughts about what tongues are. Is first is that tongues are unknown languages that, that are spoken throughout the world. So the example would be is if all of a sudden I spoke in Danish, though I don't know how to speak Danish. And somebody in Danish heard me in their native language, and they were built up and encouraged. That's the first view of what the gift of tongues looks like in Scripture, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But the second one is that tongues are a heavenly language, something that that you speak only to God and that only God understands you. Now, as you study through passages like this, you kind of see, okay, I get his point, and I get his point from either side of things. And as we try to find resolution to either, ex- or either opinion, is there appear to be problems along that journey where we're like, okay, but what about, what about this? This question makes me confused here. And me and Shayla were having a conversation. As I, was, I would say I was about 80% done, or at least I thought done this week. And then she asked a question that I hadn't considered. And I didn't know what to do with that question. And praise the Lord, she thinks very differently than me. And so she challenges me in these things, and I went, oh, oh, dear. And I had to go back and reopen everything up and figure out what what do I do with this problem? And so I'm not trying to fix all those problems because I don't know how. But I am going to interpret them through a specific lens that I think is most consistent with Scripture. Now, again, if you disagree with me on this and you're on the other perspective, that's fine. I am not trying to tell you that that I'm right and you are wrong. I'm trying to say, I think this is what's most consistent with what the Bible teaches. And if you differ, and you differ because you have some exegetical stuff in in the scriptures where you said, no, I think this is the case, then great, because the end goal will be the same, regardless of what perspective we take on this. My assumption as we go through the text, my conclusion about tongues is that these are known languages, and for a couple of reasons. Is the word heavenly language that we've that has been passed down into various denominations is not actually ever found in Scripture. There is this one thing in chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, that's the one place where it seems to be okay. There, there's maybe a heavenly language that angels speak to God, and maybe men are privy to speaking in that language so that God and angels can hear, and there's there's this belief. However, I think think to make a theological conviction based on one verse is dangerous always. And then secondly, let's read the whole couple of verses here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but, I have, lo- but have not love, I am nothing. What's his point? He's speaking very exaggeratively, isn't he? So if he's going, if I have all faith, right, if I have all prophetic powers, if I have all understandings of all mysteries, then I, you know, like he's, it's hyperbole, pretty clearly. And so when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I think he's just being consistent and arguing the same thing, is no matter how Gifted I might be, and even if I could speak directly to God in a way that nobody else could, if, even if I could do that but I didn't have love for my fellow brothers and sisters, it would be as if nothing. That's his point. So that's why I come to the conclusion that I do. Another is in Acts uh, chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 4, and this is the first time that you know, tongues is introduced to us in Scripture. This is when on Pentecost the Holy Spirit comes and says this, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In verses 7 and 8, then it says, they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? That's the most, the the biggest section of Scripture, and then I think the most clear about what this gift is used for. It's a way for God to communicate through you to somebody else that you have no ability to communicate with them. And God shows up and he just does it. And these people that are hearing the gospel being preached are going, hang on, they don't speak this language. How can I hear what they're saying now? And perhaps you've heard stories from some, some people that you know or a missionary has come and, and talked about these types of kind of miraculous events. And I think what we tend to do is we tend to then side with people who have certain experiences and we go, I know somebody who has done this and so this is how I'm going to interpret this. And again, I think that's a little bit dangerous. I mean, God can do anything He wants to do. God's all-powerful. But when we read through Scripture, we go, how is God framing this and how is He trying to teach us and what is He trying to show us all of this is for? What seems here that what the The gist of the text, as Paul's saying, is if you're crying out to God in a language that nobody else can understand, then what does it benefit anybody else? How are you building up one another? In fact, the argument for most scholars is that this was happening so often that it was this sense of self-pride where people were going, look, I can speak to God in this language that you don't even know what I'm saying. And Paul says that is not the gathering, where we come for corporate worship, that is not the place for that. And so we're not going to exhaustively determine exactly what he means, but we are going to see here that Paul says, "If this is the case, if you're speaking in tongues, then then don't. At least unless, or unless someone comes to interpret. But even notice that this is end of verse five. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. It, it doesn't take much to read that and to realize that what Paul's saying is this is not the norm." People interpreting what was happening was not the norm. Because otherwise this whole argument of don't desire this, but desire this, comes irrelevant. And so it seems that what was happening here is people were getting up and they were speaking. Now now, what languages were they speaking? All those I have all those questions too and I don't have answers for those. But what I do know is Paul's saying, if that's what the gathering is about, then it's about you and it's not about the people. So don't do that. Unless somebody's going to interpret. And so perhaps somebody shows up here that all of a sudden stands up and that says something that every one of us kind of goes, oh, I have no idea what just happened. Well, what should we do from what Paul teaches in his scripture? Well, I think we say, does anybody, can anybody interpret what just happened? And if someone can interpret that, then great, because then that cry that was made out to God then can be understood by everyone and we can, ex- we can exalt God and we can lift him up and we can do that as a body corporately where we can say, to God be the glory. But then you have all these other questions of why is that necessary? Why would it be necessary to speak in some unknown language if it wasn't for purpose and for meaning? And so then I wrestle with all these things. So somebody comes in here, they don't understand English, at least maybe not well enough to grasp what's going on here, and somebody speaks to them in a language that they hear and they're built up and they're edified, and that's translated, and everybody goes, oh, this is what happened. Praise the Lord that person understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think that's what's happening here. Now, for the sake of our memories, because again, I'm under no illusion that when you go home that you remember all these things for weeks or minutes. And, and so I wanted to do something creative. So I have Lee to come up here because we read this verse in verse six. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Well, Lee is a music teacher, and, um, and I thought, you know what, let's do exactly what's written here, is there are certain songs that I've asked Lee to play, just a second, just a second, just a second, and the point is going to be, if you know it and you understand its reference, raise your hand, and if you don't, that's okay. So Lee, go ahead with the first one. Anybody? Right? So two notes, that's all that it takes and nobody wants to go swimming, right? Like shark movie. Okay, anyway, the, the, the point just being right is even something so simple, so small, if we know what it is, we understand, we make sense of it. When you hear a train whistle, you know you don't cross the train or the train tracks, right? So Lee, let's give, let's give another one. right anybody yeah we right that's something that we if you you ever watch hockey or go to a hockey game right goodness sakes people get excited is they know this is what's happening this is what that means we have context one more Lee (laughs) all right all together now what was it excellent yeah the land far far away so right again there's this like we all maybe we all don't many of us share these things and we go i know what i know what this is and we have these memories and things that come back but what happens if maybe it's not quite as familiar Anybody? Okay, now for the sake of it, other than my son, does anybody know what that was? Donna? (laughs) Case Manga, what is it? Again, I told Swago when we were doing this. Now now we're going to do a couple of these, and no one will know but you, And that's OK. right? But the point being, thank you, Lee, that's oh, one more. Oh, one more. OK, one more. One more. What do we got? OK, how many? A few, a few. meow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the bassoon player has just noted that that is not allowed on the clarinet. Right, is when we hear these things, when we recognize them, we know what they mean. But if we don't, then even if it sounds beautiful, even if it's this wonderful thing and we look at it and we go, wow, that's amazing, but it doesn't have the same significance or meaning in our lives that it does if we know it. And so in the same way, Paul's saying, if I come and I'm just speaking in tongues and none of you understand it, how can it possibly benefit you as a church? so that's, that's his whole point here. And so, now again, those of us, who, anybody grew up in a conservative church? Those of us who grew up in conservative churches, we hear the word tongues and we're already a little bit uncomfortable and our back might be up against the wall. Paul is not forbidding it by any stretch. So we need, those of us who grew up a conservative, we need to see that. He's not saying don't do it. He's saying there's a context in which it happens. There's a context in, in which it needs to be done so that people are built up because this is not about you, it's about the body. And so if we can remind ourselves of that, how will anybody get ready for battle if they don't know what's being played? So then he goes on to this idea of prophecy. Prophecy is the building up of one another. And even in this, it gets a little bit tricky. Because what do we mean when we say prophesy? When somebody Prophesizing in the church what kind of images go through your mind these are just rhetorical questions but i just want you to kind of think it's true there's a lot of confusion about what prophecy is because when we see it in the old testament and when we see the gift of prophecy being talked about in the new testament they're actually slightly different but sometimes we think of it in the same context and when we think of the old testament prophet what did the old testament prophet do he foretold something, right? Usually it was, Israel, you have abandoned God again. If you don't turn back to him, here's what's going to happen. Right? That was typically the message. And so we think of it in the sense of predicting the future, but that's kind of an improper way to do it. Actually, what we should understand is that they were speaking on behalf of God. God was sending a warning usually, to his people that they would understand they need to turn back to him. And so he spoke through the prophet and he would say, these are my words. Would you speak these words to the people on my behalf? So a prophet in the Old Testament was a sent one who went and proclaimed what God had, what his words were for the nation so that they would know how to turn back to him and find him. That's the Old Testament understanding. The New Testament understanding is if we think of it in the sense of predicting the future, then we're misunderstanding everything because all Old Testament prophecy was designed to do, well, basically a couple of things. One was to get people to repent and turn back towards God, and the other was to remind them that one day God would deal with sin in a meaningful way where it would be paid for through the blood of Jesus. That's where all prophecy led to. And so then when we read in Hebrews 1 where the writer says, you know, in in the past God spoke through his prophets, but in these days he has spoken through his son, is there's a a new way to understand this. Is everything that God has spoken, every divine revelation that has been given is already found in this book, and so God does not, I'm, I'm firmly convinced of this, that God does not give new divine revelation. Everything exists in Scripture so that we would know who God is. Does that mean... God is incapable of speaking to other people. Uh, I think he's totally capable of that. But I don't think God then says, Greg, I'm about to give you something that you can share on behalf of the church that no one knows. Well, who's that about then? It's actually about me then and my abilities. Rather, the New Testament prophet is someone who declares this is what God has already said and he calls people back To it, which is actually very similar to what the Old Testament prophet did. It was a warning, whereas the New Testament prophet, when you exercise that gift of prophecy, is you are reminding them here's what God has said, we need to be aware. Here's how to live. Here's, Here's what God's called us. Here's what our purpose is. Here's what our meaning is. John Piper has given us a really helpful definition in this. He writes it this way. It says a prophecy a new testament prophecy is a spirit prompted spirit sustained utterance that is rooted in true revelation but is fallible because the prophet's perception of the revelation the thinking about the revelation and the report of the revelation are all fallible it is thus similar to the gift of teaching which is spirit prompted spirit sustained rooted in infallible revelation the bible and yet is fallible but very useful to the church the reason that I've come to this conclusion is, is just these two very, well, I mean, there's lots, but these two verses say it the simplest way. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 22. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Literally in that verse, you're told, don't despise the prophecies, but test the prophecies to see if it's true. Do you see a difference there between Scripture and what Paul's talking about in being prophetic is we don't test Scripture to see if Scripture is true. Scripture is the way we test everything else against to make sure that everything else is true or not true. This is the source of everything for us. And so we don't have to read, we don't have to go through a certain, you know, Romans 8 and then go, oh, we got to make sure this is true. No, we know this is true because this is God's divine revelation to us, his words written to us. But when somebody in the church stands up, when somebody comes to you and shares a prophetic utterance with you, is that's different. It's not on par with Scripture. It's not, thus saith the Lord, you should do this. That's not what we find in the New Testament, ever. Rather, it's the sense of being aware that the Holy Spirit is calling and me and Leah are having a conversation and all of a sudden I'm overwhelmed with I think God wants me to share this for Lee and I remind him of something about God's character that is true, something that I think maybe God is trying to use in Lee's life to bless other people. And then he tests that by the word of God to make sure that what is said has been true. And if it's not, then he just moves along with his life and pretends it never happened. But somehow, we in our North American mindset have gotten so consumed with this idea of that a, prof, a prophecy given has to come true exactly as predicted, but it's not. that's not what prophecy is. And so I know somebody in, in our Winnipeg church, uh, previous to, to moving here, that they were prophesied over about a specific thing that their life was going to entail and do. And for years, he spent every single penny he possibly had to try and make that come until he was so bitter and angry he left the church and left God. Did God say something incorrect to him? No, but somebody went to him and said, God told me this is what you were supposed to do. We have to be careful. We have to test what those people say. Is this consistent with God's character? Is this consistent with what is written in the word? Is I can't come up to you, though you maybe want me to say this, and say God has called you to go move to Hawaii. That'd be great, right? Right? But if I tell you, this is what God has done, he has told me, Greg, tell this person, this you need to move to Hawaii and God's gonna do you know X, Y, and Z in you and then you go, okay, is that how God speaks nowadays? Does God give divine new revelation in that way? Rather, if I feel strongly, man, I see something and I go, I think maybe God's calling you to something different, to something new. Maybe it's time for you to consider is God calling you to a different community? And maybe I see this in your life. And then, and then you now have that authority to go back to Scripture and to go, is this true? Is this right? Is this what is good? And then with everything, we hold hands open instead of closing them because we are fallible people. And how many times have we been convinced something is right that we should do only later to look back on it and go, man, I think I misunderstood. I think I missed the point. I think I did this wrong when I thought I was so certain that this was right as we are not infallible people. and So we need to understand that. Scripture is the only thing that is infallible. And so Paul, when he's writing this, he's saying eagerly desire to prophesy. It's not because he's saying so that everyone in the church would know exactly what is true and right and what you were calling. No, he's saying so that you can encourage, so that you can bring to mind the truth of what Scripture says, the truth of who God is and his character. Because then we are built up. If you're going through a crisis in your life and and I remind you that, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but I know according to scripture that God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. I have built you up in that moment, not because of something that I've said, but because of something that's been true of what God has already said about himself, that he walks with you in the midst of your heartaches and your pain, and that's a prophetic moment. When we declare the truth on Sunday mornings and we read something and we say, this is what God has said, we are being prophetic because we are declaring this is who God is. And that's why I say so often, I try very hard not to give you my opinions, but to simply exegete what's in the text because what's in the text I know to be true. What I think, I only think it. I'm not certain it's true. John Bloom writes this, this is very helpful. He says, it's important to understand that prophecy is not offering something more than Scripture, as if it's some kind of improvement on it. Rather, Scripture says prophecy is one of the means of grace God has given to the church. In other words, prophecy is not Scripture's competitor, but it's prescription. I think, man, what a great way to understand that. And so when we come to certain spiritual gifts and we go, man, I don't really know, like, uh, the misuse of this one gift uh, has, has really stained me. Well, that's exactly what's happened in Corinth, and Paul's saying, don't, don't, just, don't just not desire them. Desire to understand them correctly and use them for the upbuilding of the church so that people would be gathered together and encouraged, so that we, the church, would be able to go out and do the very task that God has called us to do, which is what? Love God and love people that we might bring them into the kingdom of heaven. Not because of any smart, intelligent conversation we had, but because God was at work and we just happened to be there at the same time. Praise the Lord for his grace. Praise the Lord that he uses our words that we don't even maybe understand ourselves all the time, but that he is at work in the hearts and in the minds of others. So as we finish these 12 verses, look at it in this context, this is whatever your gift is, if your gift is being used so that you can feel better about yourself, or so that you can feel that you're more spiritually mature, that others can look at you and see that, man, I want that. If that's the mentality, then we're doing it exactly wrong. And we need to be rebuked the same way that Paul rebukes the Corinthians. Don't not use your gifts, but use them for the upbuilding of one another. Not for the upbuilding of you, but for the body. Let's pray. God, thank you So much for each one who is here this morning and you have created them uniquely and you have gifted them uniquely. And sometimes we don't really understand how all these gifts work exactly, but we know that you have given them to us. And so we pray that we would desire to use the gifts that you have given us and that we would desire to build up the body. God, help us to not focus on ourselves, but help us to focus on how I can encourage how I can sustain, how I can come alongside another brother or sister and give them something that will help their relationship with you. God, help us to not think so selfishly as the world has had so much impact on us. Help us to not think in those regards, but help us to step back from that and look at this as the community of faith that we love each one so desperately. We want them to be in a good walking relationship with Jesus, and we want to encourage them so that they grow more tomorrow, so that they are more mature tomorrow than they were today. Not because of my gifts, but because of the gifts that you have given to us for the exaltation of you and the building up of one another. God, we are so grateful for all that you are doing in our lives. Go with us today. Amen.